Welcome to another edition of Alakiski Chronicle. This is where we celebrate the heritage of the Kiskiminitis and Allegheny River Valleys. My name is Kevin Farkas. I produce this podcast with the Social Voice Podcast Network. And today we are here at the museum recording a talk by John Nichols, who is a history professor, retired, John? Retired. Retired history professor from Slippery Rock. And John's presentation tonight is about World War II letters from his uncles. And his book called World War II Uncles at War is really going to be the, the, the talk tonight. Well, welcome, John. We're going to get to your presentation just in a moment here, the magic of uh, podcasting. But um, you are from Newcastle. How was your trip in here today? Uh, a little busier than normal. Uh, <laughs> I came with uh, rush hour. So as a consequence, I was a little later than I would want to be. So other than that, everything's fine. Have you been here to Trentum before? I've never actually been in downtown Trentum. No, I have not. I've drove through a lot between New Kensington and Butler, but uh, I never actually stopped here. Except one time when I bought a car from Napoleon Pontiac. That was near here? That's in Trentum. Oh, it, okay. So you came <laughs> to buy a car here. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> well, welcome back. Thank you. This is a wonderful museum. I heard you say when you came in that you'd never been here before. Never been here, right. What are your thoughts? Very nice. I think it uh, you know, needs exploring, quite frankly. There's so much here that you just can't come in and, and spend a few minutes. You have to spend some time really looking at everything that's here. And it seems to be a, a variety of things, not just simply one particular war, but a variety of wars and also a variety of uh, items that uh, require some you know, attention and to look at it, and there's some details, some pictures. It looks very nice, very very interesting. Down below, there's a 19th century village oh. with a barbershop and wow. a fire brigade and a, a beauty parlor, as they called it back in the day. Mm -hmm. It's rather interesting. Very good. Yeah. I hope to see it sometime. Yeah, yeah please come back and, uh, and uh, take a tour. Or Jim Thomas, the president, will give you a tour. And Jim's going to introduce you here in just a bit, and then we're going to go on with your presentation recorded live tonight here. Hi, I'm Jim Thomas, in case you don't know me. Welcome to the allegheny Kiski Valley Historical Society. I see some people that promised to be here, and they are here. Okay, great. Tonight, Kevin is uh, recording this session. You can access that podcast from our uh, website, akvhs.org. Kevin knows more what a podcast is than I do. It's like listening to the radio again, I think. Tonight, we have the pleasure of uh, company of uh, John Nichols, who uh, has some relatives that lived in Logan's Ferry and went and served in World War II, and he did some family research, and he's going to tell us about it. John's a retired professor from Slippery Rock, um, retired professor of history, and he uh, has one of the best jobs in the world now. He travels on cruise ships all over the world and does talks. Can't beat it. Okay, I'm going to get out of the way, and uh, here's John. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming out tonight. I'm really honored to uh, speak uh, on behalf of my uncles, quite frankly. The reason I wanted to come here is because this is the area in which I was raised and my uncles lived before uh, I've moved on to other uh, parts of my life. And of course, I thought it might be a good experience to explain who they were and what they were about. And as a consequence, I put a little talk together for us for tonight. 
And I titled it uh, World War II, uh, Uncles at War. And the reason I uh, called it Uncles at War is because my wife, uh, who is here, uh, directs a book group in Newcastle where we live. And once a month, uh, we read a book. And one of the books that we read this past year was called Princes at War. So I sort of stole the title, Princes at War, uh, to uh, talk about my uncles at war. And the princes, if you haven't identified them there, are the three sons, or four sons, of uh, George V. And uh, one of them, of course, goes on to uh, marry a, a woman from the United States uh, who was divorced a couple times. And he has to give up the throne uh, in order for uh, him to marry her. And so that's a picture of them. And it was a good read, uh, but it has nothing to do at all with my talk tonight. So I wanted to just let you know about that. Uh, the reason I got started in this, quite frankly, is uh, I just uh, published my own autobiography last year. Uh, once you, of course, finish teaching, you have all this material that you have like, sort of gathered over your lifetime. And I thought I'd like to put this together to let people know who I am and what I was about and so forth. Mostly it was for my own family. And uh, I got to a publisher who thought it was a good idea. And I, I put it together and it came, came out very well. So it's a well-received. I'm very happy that I was able to, to do this. And as a result of this family history, I thought, okay, well, I won't stop with my life. I'll go ahead and talk about some other things as well. So I put together, now I'm starting my history of my family, which is a much, much bigger book. And it uh, is going to work from the present, working that back to the past. And so it's a sort of an interesting one. I'm collecting all the documents from my mother and father's families. And what I'm doing is basically putting this together. And most of you probably are familiar with a, a software program called uh, Family Tree Maker which is available for persons to put information about their family together on Ancestry.com. And then in order to do this properly, you have to do interviews. You have to uh, talk to people who have records and so forth and so on. So I've gathered a lot of information about my family. And then once I've started to do writing, I have to go back to these people and say, what have I uh, done? Have I made, made any mistakes? So let's, let's do some corrections. So as a consequence, this is where it comes from. This is why I'm talking about these uncles now. My family specifically, one of my families, my mother's side of the family is called the Gray family. Uh, uh, they lived around this area and ended up ultimately in Logan's Ferry. Uh, you see her here uh, with her three brothers. Uh, this, this was taken in uh, August of uh, 1922, you can see from this picture. And the taller boy there on her uh, left is uh, her, the oldest son, uh, his name was Bill. He goes into the Navy. My mother uh, is there and then the younger brother is Eldred. Uh, he goes into the Air Force. And my uh, the little boy down there, Jerry, or Gerald's, Gerald's, he, he's called, he will go into the uh, Air Force. So these are the uncles that I'm referring to and I have one other uncle I'm talking about as well. Just to review, I think most of you are familiar with this, but I wanted to make sure you're aware of time frame. Uh, of course, in September of 1939, Germany invades Poland. Uh, Britain declares war on Germany. The Japanese, for years, have been fighting in China. Uh, as a consequence, uh, Ch uh, Japan joins the Axis powers. May of 1940, Germany invades Belgium and France. The British Army are, of course, uh, trapped at Dunkirk. Uh, and there's a brand new movie which is out on the Dunkirk, if you haven't had a chance to see it yet. I recommend it. It gives a wonderful sort of idea as to how 
Uh, these men were trapped in what they had to deal with to get out of the experience that the Germans had trapped them in. June of 1940, the French sign an armistice. Uh, this creates a country called Vichy France, which is under the control of the Germans. In July of 1940, the Battle of Britain begins where you have the bombing of uh, London and other key cities in England. March 1941, the U.S. signs a lease, Lend-Lease Act. June of 1941, Germany invades the Soviet Union. December of 1941, so there's a lot of dates here I'm giving you, but look how long it takes before the United States even gets into the war itself. It was only after the bombing of Pearl Harbor that we actually declare war on the Axis powers and as a consequence get involved in what is known as World War II. Uh, my uh, one brother, uncle, I mean, that uh, I'm showing you or talking about here is called Eldred, and he has a, a nickname called Pix. I have no idea what that means. I looked it up. It doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, nobody alive anymore remembers why they called him Pix, so I can't explain that. Uh, his middle name was Azer. Uh, it's a little story. It's kind of a funny story. Uh, his father's name was Ebenezer, but they didn't know how to say Ebenezer, so they called it Azer, and he became known as Azer as a, as a result. I don't think anybody in the world has a middle name called Azer, except guess who else? Me. <laughs> I have one too. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, uh, I have his actual enlistment le uh, records, and I just wanted to I'll just highlight a few things here. Uh, he's, of course, you can see place of enlistment was Pittsburgh. The date of enlistment was uh, the 18th day, 12th month, which would be December of 1941. So very quickly after really the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, he enlists in the Air Force. He wants to be camp become a pilot if he passes the, all the tests to do so. That was what his intention was, uh, to join the, what's called at that time the Air Corps. Uh, the branch of service, uh, you'll notice here, he enlists for a duration of the war. That's wh what you did back then. You simply, as long as it took, you were going to be fighting, or that plus, and plus six months. As far as uh, his uh, year of birth, it was born in 1917. It says race white, et cetera. He did have one year of college, which was surprising to me. I never really even knew that at all when I started to do this research. As, as far as I knew, I was the only person who'd ever gone to college in my family at all. Uh, and uh, I was uh, kind, of, kind of surprised that he had one year in before he was, went into the service. He was single, no dependents at the time of his enlistment. Uh, he enlisted in the Air Force in December 18, I've already told you. Uh, at the time he is recorded, and because this is all in his records that we have, he weighed 176 pounds, uh, stood six foot one tall, accepted into pilot training. Uh, one of his letters home, he told how difficult it was to be an air cadet during this particular time period. A letter dated in February 21st, uh, he said that he was then to fly to Decatur, Alabama, uh, which is where he was going to start learning how to train. The Decatur Air Force uh, field was opened in October of 1941, and you can see the picture there of what it looked like. It's simply a square airfield. You could uh, take off and land in different directions, 4,600 by 4,600 feet. Uh, and this is where he started out uh, in being tested. He began training with what's called the U.S. Army Air Corps at the time before it was separated out. Uh, he, uh, the flying cadets were under contract to Southern Airways. Uh, they were responsible for training them. 
assigned to the Gulf Coast Training Center, uh, later the Central Flying Training Command, as the primary level one training pilot airfield uh, for the training of these pilots. He wrote that uh, they started out as a group of dodos who were tested to see if they really qualified for flight school. And according to his letter, only three persons of his dodo class actually remained because everybody else had failed. And he, they were reassigned to other fields such as navigation, photography, and bombardiering. He said he was still doing okay, but had failed the first two tests out of the three the first week, but he had passed the two since then. And he had one more week to go and he'd be elevated to the upper class status with, with a new group of dodo, dodos which would be coming in. He said it was his understanding that the upperclassmen were to make it hard on the new recruits, but since no one had been particularly hard on him, he wasn't going to, quote, dish it out. Uh, you notice here a little bit of college uh, slang which was used. Uh, when I went to college, what you had to do, and some of you probably uh, did as well, is you had to be introduced as a freshman by wearing certain type of things. We used to have to wear what's called a dink on your head, and people would make fun of you, and you, the upper class would force you to do different things. Uh, until you were a sophomore and then you got to dish it out on the a freshmen who were coming in. Actual training began in what was called a Fairchild PT-19. Uh, this is what it looked like and if you notice it has two places for the pilot and the trainer. Uh, it is one in which the uh, individuals will start learning how to, to pre-solo flight. Then later on he would uh, graduate to a Curtis P-36 Hawk which evolved into the Curtis P-40 Warhawk. And if you see any war movies at all, this is a very famous plane which was used a lot uh, in World War II. Very successful. Pilot training uh, was for, uh, also for bombers. And once he had passed uh, his training courses in Decatur, Alabama, he was then sent to Green Greenville, South Carolina to practice training in bombers. Apparently that's what they wanted him to do. Uh, the B-25 Mitchell was what he was going to be trained in. It's a medium twin-sized bomber, which is used for this particular purpose. That's what, that's what it looks like. And over, over 80,000 airmen went through Donaldson Air Force Base during World War II. Eldred would be one of those uh, trained for this particular purpose. Uh, this is just pictures of final pilot training I have from them. War Department approved the establishment of the Army Airfield in Columbus in 1941. The school's mission was to train cadets to fly transports and bombers, so they had two purposes basically. Pilot wings were awarded upon graduation and were sent on to a group command by training as first, second, third, or fourth Air Force. Graduates were usually graded according to their testing and their ability as pilots, as flight officers, warrant officers, Cadets who graduated the very top of their class were graded out as second lieutenants. And the reason I point that out to you is because Eldred was a second lieutenant, so he was able to be a pilot. He was assigned to Columbus Field in Mississippi. He graduated from the class called Ford 42G. Uh, graduation was on August 5th, 1942. Uh, he joined a crew of 11 men altogether who would fly what is called the Consolidated B-24 Liberator. This is what Columbus Field looked like back in 1942. Again, very similar to the one that you saw in Decatur, just a little bit of con different configuration as far as the runways are concerned. 
This is his letter home to us uh, in 1942. His letter ended with greetings to all. He says, thanks to older brother Bill. As I already explained it, he was in the Navy. Uh, he said, thanks for Bill and his wife Verna for cakes, for cigars uh, they, that he had bought down in uh, the South. They're being sent to his father, Aben, and pins for his mother, Violet. His sister, Esther, was to be careful with a new boyfriend, and Ruthie better watch out for her. Ruthie was the youngest sister. Sister Vivian had better write soon, or she was going to get a bottle of ink from him, he says. And he was sorry he told Sister Lida, my mother, that he could not get a Valentine card for Jackie, me. So just give him a smoochie for me. So that's what I got, a smoochie, I guess, from my mother. I can't remember, quite frankly. This is what the Consolidator B-24 Liberator looked like. That's the in, in, inside of it. The cockpit, very, very complicated, as you can see. And it was not a plane that you would like to fly, quite frankly. There was a book which was also read by our book group called Unbroken. Uh, it is uh, based upon the life of a particular individual. A movie was made of his life. And in this book, uh, Laura Hildebrand researched the status of these mass-produced planes that the air crew, air crew actually called flying coffins. Gives you an idea of their quality. Engines frequently failed, and with one going out, staying in the air was actually questionable. Two going out, it was a real emergency. The person who she was writing about was this guy, Louis Zamperini. Zamperini, I'm sorry. And Zamperini, of course, has, there's a movie made of him. He was a very famous uh, athlete in, uh, the world, in the Olympics. Uh, shows a picture of him here. He said his crew called the Liberator the flying brick, the, fl the flying box car, or the, my special one, the consolidated lumberer. The cockpit was cramped. Taxing was an adventure. Wheels had no steering at all. Mechanical difficulties were frequent. Staying in the air was actually a challenge. In training, 52,651 accidents were recorded in the states alone over the course of the war, just in the states alone. Moreover, 14,903 personnel were killed on coastal patrol or other duties with these planes. In the beginning of the war, 33 planes a day met with accidents. That's how poorly made they were made because they were just learning how to make them, basically. Yet if one survived, the whole crew was assigned to their bomber and off they went. The assignment of Eldred's crew was this one. Uh, I didn't know very much about this at all, and maybe some of you don't, so it's an in interesting uh, report I can give you on it. During the outbreak of World War II, the United States assumed Britain's defense responsibilities in the Caribbean. British air and uh, naval bases on five British West Indian islands, the Bahamas, Jamaica, Antigua, St. Lucia, and Trinidad and Tobago, as well as the British Guiana and Bermuda, were all American air bases responsible for the defense of the Gulf. The United States established 11 bases altogether in the area and quickly transformed those five British colonies in the West Indies into outposts of the Caribbean defense for use against German submarine warfare. And people are saying, what are we doing in the Caribbean? I mean, why is that an issue? Why is this a problem? Because the Caribbean became really the forward edge of American defense strategy during the war, and here's why. The strategic significance of the Caribbean became evident during the war because 50% of all the supplies sent to Europe and Africa 
left from ports in the Gulf of Mexico. So that's where we were shipping all of our, our supplies from. Rather than from the Atlantic coast, we were shipping them out of the Gulf Coast. And it was believed to be safer in that particular way. In response to this, Germany took over islands which Vichy, that is France, held. There are a number of French islands that are part of the French Empire. And as a consequence, once Germany took over Vichy, France, then they became German. And so as a consequence, places like maybe some of you have even gone to, how many of you have been to St. Martin's in the Caribbean? That was France, that's French. And so that would have been Vichy, France. There was a harbor there, that's where the German our submarines would operate out of, at least in the beginning of the war. So that's an example of that. There are some other islands as well. U-boats were sent to sink anything that could supply allies in North Africa or in Europe. By the end of only 1942, U-boats operating in the Caribbean had sunk 336 ships alone. And uh, half of these were oil tankers, or 1.5 million tons of cargo altogether. And just, uh, this is an interesting, I think, example that I can show you here. You have a whole series of black dots. Every one of those black dots represent places in which a ship was sunk. So this is for the entire war, shipping losses. Uh, the ones that are not all black were ones in which they were struck but not sunk. So if you ever go to the Caribbean and you want to do some scuba diving, there's a good chance you would probably see some of these ships because they are all over the place, especially down around Trinidad Tobago. This is the Air Force base where Eldred and his crew were sent. They would be flying out of Trinidad. Uh, this is what it looked like back then, 1942. Uh, Port of Spain is the capital. The crew's assignment uh, was to do the following. They were assigned to uh, Trinidad with the express purpose to patrol the Caribbean and coastal uh, areas of the United States for German U-boats. In 1942, U-boats followed the policy of diving to avoid airplane attacks. In other words, if the U-boat was on the surface, because that was a, a, one of the ways that they would be able to go, but back at that particular point in time, they could, they could go underwater, of course, but they also fought on the surface as well. And so what would happen is you could have a plane coming over. As soon as they would see a plane coming, they would submerge. Well, they found out that submerging took a lot of time and the plane might come and be able to get them before they could get underwater. So as a consequence, in 1942, they tried to avoid these attacks by submerging, but beginning in 1943, they were ordered to actually stand on the surface and fight and far back. And so this was a policy which was going on at that particular point in time. Regardless, on December 21st, 1942, Eldridge's plane and its crew of 11 were gone. And so he disappears. We don't know where he went or what happened to him. The, cap, the, the pilots are, you see there, uh, different names, Eldred's second one, Navigator, and these are all the names of the persons who were lost on that particular plane. Uncle number two, William Bill Nichols. See him there in his uniform and uh, Gerald Jerry Gray. Like Elder Gray, Bill Nichols and Jerry Gray decided to enlist together in December 31st, 1941. Additionally, they wanted to go to the Air Force and they hoped they would be together during the war. They would be, home to, they would be assigned to the same place. So they signed up to go to Biloxi, Mississippi, but were told when they went to enlist 
that that particular camp was full. And so they had another choice, and they said, well, let's go to Texas instead. They had never been to Texas. I don't think they'd ever been out of Pennsylvania, for that matter. They left on New Year's Day, 1942, and arrived at Shepherd Field in Wichita Falls. But they stayed there only two weeks. Then, kind of interestingly, they took all the men whose last names began with L through P. Of course, Bill Nichols would be in that group. And they sent them uh, to Dale Marby Field in Tallahassee, Florida. A Jerry Gray with a G name obviously will be sent someplace else. So they never did. Uh, for the rest of the war, Bill and Jerry never saw each other. Neither wanted to be pilots. Uh, I mean, at that point in time, Eldred was still alive, but they just didn't have the capabilities of being pilots. They decided both of them had a training in mechanics and thought they could be best served as mechanics. This is what Marlby Field looked like uh, during that period where Uncle Bill Nichols went, some barracks where they lived, just typical conditions during the war. When it was discovered that Bill Nichols could actually type 28 words a minute, and I have no idea how he could do that, uh, they asked if he wanted to be a military correspondent. He says, absolutely, because he would do anything to get out of KP. And so that, for him, was a, a very good thing. And there's a picture of them typing away you know, as correspondents for the war. His assignment, uh, after basic training in May of 1942, Bill was assigned to duty in the Panama Canal Zone. At the height of the war, 65,000 American soldiers were stationed in Panama, plus 10,000 civilian employees as well. But in order to get there, Bill had to be transported by boat. A, uh, this is a very famous story that he tells the family. I was interested in it. He wrote that it took seven, seven to eight days to steam around Cuba. It takes probably in a big cruise ship today about two days. Uh, not going at, you know, we're not, but usually around 21, 22 knots, something like that. So it shows you they're going to get there very fast. Uh, all his clothes were put into a van in another ship before he sailed, and that particular ship was sunk. So he had no clothes at all, that, nothing of his. Uh, that month, 138 ships were sunk in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and Bill's luxury boat, because he got on a different boat, was not. So he does make it to Panama safely. Uh, in letters home, Bill wrote that he became a chief clerk in the control squadron of a fighter group at Howard Air Force Base. In a letter dated to his father, November 27, 1942, uh, he lists himself as a corporal. He thanked his father for writing and was very so homesick. Uh, we have a number of his letters, and he just keeps writing about how homesick he was. Uh, he was only looking forward to getting home and having some beers with his family. Both his parents were having trouble. They were worrying excessively, excessively about him uh, for his own safety. Uh, his father, my grandfather, suffered for about six months with a deep depression. Uh, he uh, owned a pharmacy in Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, this uh, pharmacy, he just simply could not run anymore. He owned a mortgage on it of $1,800. Uh, and one day, uh, there's a picture of it. His name's up above, John E. Nichols, uh, 4800 uh, Penn Avenue in, in, in Bloomfield. Uh, he just simply put the key in the door to the place and walked away from it. He couldn't take it anymore. In 1942, the actual business was assessed at $10,735.19. But 
He didn't know that at the time. I mean, that's what he was paying taxes on. And I'm sure it was worth much more. Uh, today, uh, it, well, it was a lawyer's office, and, but uh, there's a big sign on it now saying for sale. So it's still there. And my grandfather and his family lived above the store for many, many years before he moved to New Kensington. This is Howard Air Force Base in World War II, what it looked like when Bill was there. And as you notice, uh, his next letter marked June 21st. He was now promoted to a staff sergeant. He was attached to the 43rd Fighting Squadron, uh, getting his mail out of New Orleans. He also explains that he now was in charge of the mechanical makeup or upkeep of planes, which was his forte. I mean, he was good at, at that. And he had a number of persons under his uh, command. This is a good picture of uh, showing you here the Panama Canal. Uh, the zone itself is uh, about 50 miles wide, uh, and it uh, uh, runs from, uh, as you see, the north down to the south. Uh, you're going from the Caribbean down into the Pacific. And his location would have been up here uh, near Panama City. Uh, he, that's where Howard Air Force Base is located. Panama was of major strategic importance during the war mainly because after Pearl Harbor, the United States obviously did not have a very large fleet. Uh, the Japanese sinking of a number of uh, ships at Pearl Harbor was uh, not the complete elimination of the Pacific Fleet, but it ruined it to such a degree that uh, if uh, we, didn't have Pearl, uh, we didn't have the Panama Canal, we couldn't get our fleet from the Atlantic to the Pacific very quickly. And so this became a very strategic location for our uh, Navy. Uh, ships were built to size, what's called Panama size, uh, not the Panama Max size. And if you've been to the Panama Canal recently or you've heard about it, they've just opened up new locks. And this is for a large, much for larger vessels now. Uh, uh, we just went through them last year, I guess, was the first time. But this is a, a picture from World War II, seeing a battleship going through. Uh, it provided an in, invaluable link between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans both not only for military, but co commerce. And uh, the defense of the canal obviously was of tr tremendous importance. Uh, my uncle told me all kinds of mock drills that they had to go through. One thing in particular is as soon as they spotted any type of airplane that was suspicious, they had these smoke bombs, which they had to put off, that would put up incredible smoke screens, which would then prevent you from seeing where the canal was because if all they had to do was drop a bomb on one of the locks, and that would completely eliminate the ability of the ship to be able to go up and down through these locks. Uh, after uh, Panama, he was then assigned to go to New Mexico. Notice the date much later, August 8, 1944. He left uh, Panama for San Diego by way of water. Uh, he eventually uh, goes to Lincoln, Nebraska, and then to Fort Sumter, New Mexico. While he was there, he met a woman. Uh, her name was uh, Muriel Edlin, uh, who lived in uh, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, she was a member of the WACS. And at the time, she was a clerk typist. And at a Christmas Eve dance, uh, he met her, and they uh, got together. I obviously liked one another. While at Fort Sumner, he became a technical sergeant and had a crew of about 30 planes that he was responsible for maintaining with a, a man underneath him. He was discharged in October 30, 1945, and he and Muriel ended up getting married in December 25, 1945. Uh, they, they were discharged in 45. They ended up getting married 
in June 26, 1947. And this is their picture after they just got home in 46 uh, in their respective uniforms. And my last uncle, uh, Gerald Gray, Jerry Gray, as noted above, uh, Bill Nichols and Jerry Gray enlisted together. They went to different camps. Uh, when pre uh, prepared, Jerry sailed to Australia as part of the U.S. Army 13th Air Force Group. The objective was to counter the Japanese in the South Pacific, and his assignment in particular was aircraft maintenance, pretty much like uh, Bill Nichols. Uh, this map is very interesting. I don't know if you can notice all the details here, but everything encircled in red had been conquered by the Japanese. What they're doing is they're making way down toward Australia. And one of the key places here would be these islands. If you can take these islands down here, this would give them control of the Straits, sea, the Coral Sea, and be able to attack Australia. We're sending supplies as much as possible from the United States. And of course, the British have their own problems in Burma and India during this particular uh, time. But uh, this is where all the battles are going to take place. And as I told you, Jerry was sent to Australia. Then from Australia, he goes to New Caledonia. And then from New Caledonia, he's sent to Guadalcanal. On October 3rd, 1942, Jerry is sent by ship uh, to the Solomon Islands. Uh, the Japanese had built an air base at Guadalcanal with the intention really of, as I said, using it as a base to uh, expand into the Pacific. And rather interestingly enough, the U.S. Marines uh, uh, invade this island on uh, Guadalcanal, and they're easy, uh, re able to retake the airfield very quickly. The airfield was renamed Henderson Field and would be used as a base to counter the Japanese advance. Well, the Japanese realized they made a mistake when this airfield was taken over by the Americans. Uh, this is what the airfield looked like. It's nothing but a, a, basically a stri strip in the, in the islands. This is Jerry Gray at Guadalcanal. You see him here, rather looking dashing in his uh, sunglasses. The Battle of uh, Guadalcanal is one which is very well known. Uh, anybody who's an expert on military history and Pacific particularly uh, knows about it. Uh, realizing how important the air base would be the Japanese will make several attempts between August to November to retake Henderson Field. Three major land battles, seven large naval battles, five nighttime surface actions, and two carrier battles, almost continual fighting uh, will occur to try to retake that island. Uh, it is a major, major undertaking by the Japanese. The culmination of this will be a decisive naval battle at Guadalcanal in early the November 1942, when the Japanese attempted to bomb Henderson Field from the sea and land with enough troops to retake it, but in the end uh, were defeated. In other words, they did not take Guadalcanal. This is the very first reversal of the Japanese in the Pacific. So this becomes the beginning of the attempt on the part of the United States and allies to turn back the J Japanese offensive. So very significant. This is a map of Guadalcanal, actually several ones that I'm showing you. This is what the island looked like. It's a very small island. Uh, the airfield itself uh, can be seen up here. This area in the blue is one in which was a perimeter to be defended. And you see these red arrows. Those are all areas in which the Japanese were attacking. So it was a prolonged period of time. But eventually, as I told you, the island will be uh, secured by the Japanese and will use Henderson Field as a base now 
to fly American planes out against the Japanese Navy. Jerry at Guadalcanal would be responsible for this. He was promoted to a chief petty officer, which means he was in, in the chief or the senior non-commissioned officer, uh, much like a senior staff officer in the Army. As planes flew out on different missions, it was his job to make sure they were in good running order and fueled to return to battle. And this would be a daily occurrence. I mean, every day you'd have planes going out day after day after day. The ongoing assaults on the enemy and duty to do his job was compounded by the fact that he, like a lot of the other soldiers at this time, had contracted malaria. He also, uh, after the war is over, we find out he has post-traumatic stress as well uh, that a lot of men will have to deal with. For years, what exactly happened to him was not revealed by family members, but later in his life uh, and surrounded by his sisters and wife, I had him at a dining room table one time. I said, Jerry, exactly what happened? I mean, what happened to you at Guadalcanal? And as you know, a lot of veterans don't like to talk about things too. So this was one of those moments where I just captured, I think, what, what took place. Uh, this shows you a picture of him at Guadalcanal, uh, showing him pointing out one of the planes here. Here's what he said. He explained that after plane returned, a pilot was responsible for dumping the gasoline that he had in his reserve tank. Uh, you do that before landing. If planes were in need of repair from battle, some welding obviously would be necessary. And he was in the process of welding one of these tanks, but this one had gasoline still in it. And when his torch hit the gasoline, the tank exploded. His right arm was severely injured, and he had to be flown to a hospital in Fiji. While he was there, he was visited by the president's, uh, president's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. She thanked him for doing a very good job, and she gave him a kiss. Uh, and this photograph I'm going to show you now has never been seen by anyone in the family. This was the first time anyone in the family ever saw it. And uh, the reason I could find it is I looked up Eleanor Roosevelt on Google and Fiji and wounded soldiers, and there he was. And I said, is this really my uncle? Is this really Jerry Gray? And part of the reason I questioned it, if, I don't know if you can make out here, but he has a ring on his finger, like he's married. Well, he wasn't married. He was single at the time. Uh, you do see his arm, you know, but this ring's on his finger. And so I asked his wife, I said, it couldn't be Jerry. And she says, it's Jerry. I said, why? She says, because the ring was given to him by his parents to safeguard him while he was in the war. And so she immediately identified him, and his wife is still alive. So she identified him for us. Jerry returns to the United States. He was transported to a place called O'Reilly General Hospital in Missouri. The accident was so severe that his arm was to be amputated. I mean, that was the, it was just gone. It was nothing there. By good fortune, however, a surgeon was from John Hopkins, had been flown in specifically to operate on the arm of a high-ranking officer. And while the doctor was examining this officer, one of the orderlies says, hey, I have an enlisted man upstairs with a similar wound. You want to take a look at him? So this surgeon goes upstairs, looks at Jerry's arm, decides, okay, well, I'll give it a try, see if I can save it. The surgeon being there is what actually saved his arm and hand from being amputated. This is what the hospital looks like uh, back in 1945. O'Reilly General Hospital was the place where a lot of soldiers and sailors were taken. Spring of 1941, groundbreaking at this hospital was designed specifically to treat service personnel who had been wounded in the war 
at capacity. Uh, it uh, finally reached its peak of 6,000 patients a day at, in the spring of 1945. So it was a huge, huge facility for this. They had over 50,000 patients there that had been uh, taken care of by August of 1946. 24,000 operations were performed, of which 7,620 were plastic surgery. So a very, very large hospital for that purpose. Jerry was at O'Reilly. Uh, he also went to other hospitals as well for repeated operations back and forth over a number of years. A metal rod was placed inside his arm from his wrist to his elbow. And with rehabilitation, he was able to use it as best he could. He was right-handed, and so he had to learn how to do everything with his left hand, basically. In the end, though, uh, his wound was classified as, quote, loss of arm. Uh, added to this, his post-traumatic stress, uh, it was just getting started at, at that point in time and being diagnosed, so they really didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, he just dealt with it, essentially. Uh, while it allied for disability pay, the arm's weakness was uh, lifelong. He was honorably discharged in 1945. While at leave between operations on his arm, uh, Jerry met a 17-year-old Pat Stafford on December 15, 1943. Uh, they married on December 31, 1944, only one year later. It was a marriage which lasted for 66 years, two months, and 14 days. They have six college-educated children, many with uh, advanced degrees, uh, wonderful family, wonderful family. Jerry worked for 30 years in Napoleon Pontiac in town. Uh, he was in charge of service department. He was the head of the service department. He owned a farm out in the township, 500 acres, uh, lived out a great life, uh, died uh, several years ago. Post-war, on uh, January 13th, uh, the Gray family received a posthumous Purple Heart and flag. Uh, that's a picture of it. We have the Purple Heart uh, in our possession. It was given to the Gray family from a grateful nation. A memorial with the elder, uh, names of Eldred's crew of 11 are engraved at Battery Park in Manhattan, New York. And if you've ever been to the, uh, the Battery Park, it's down at the point. Down. You can actually see it. You can see the Statue of Liberty off in the distance. So this short, short description of my uncles in World War II is in no way greater than the pain and anguish other families suffered during World War II, obviously. But what the Nichols Gray family experienced, I think, demonstrates that they too sacrificed uh, for world peace. Elder Gray obviously made the ultimate gift of his life. Bill Nichols could only witness from afar as his family suffered in depression and loss of livelihood. Uh, Jerry Gray's right arm was saved only by good fortune, but it obviously left him with a lifetime disability that he simply had to make do with. Uh, those who gave the ultimate gift, their names are engraved in Battery Park in Manhattan, and if you look closely, you can see Elder Gray's name is uh, there as well. I wanted to finish off with this as the last thing. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all, but there was an artist in... Great Britain, uh, who wanted to remember the sacrifice that uh, was made in June of 1944 on the beaches at Normandy. And so he started out with 30 people with the idea that he could make some type of mark in the sand where these persons had fallen. And as word started to spread, 
What happened is he got 500 people volunteering to join him. And what they did is they scratched on the surface of the sand the images of these individuals who gave up their life, of the 9,000 who died on the beaches of Normandy in a single day. Uh, and so this is what it was like, and I thought it was a good remembrance, basically, of, of the whole sacrifice that is made. Thank you. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.